and will continue to do it. And of course, we cannot forget war refugees. We have to help them. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat uh, with me, Jim Gould again, and uh, Mike Rouse. And uh, in Backchat this morning, we're going to be talking about the conflict uh, in Ukraine. Um, Among the latest developments, uh, so uh, President Putin of Russia has ordered that the country's nuclear deterrence forces be put on uh, special alert, um, accusing the the West of... uh, um, aggressive statements and unfriendly actions and and meanwhile the conflict uh, on the ground uh, goes on after several days now. Um, we're joined uh, on the line by Professor Alistair Cole who's the head of the Department of Government and International Studies at Hong Kong Baptist University and also we hope to have uh, Alexei Muraviev. Uh, fr- uh, he's from uh, Curtin University in Western Australia um, but uh, Professor Cole first, a good morning to you. Hello, Professor Cole. Hello, yes. Yeah, good, good morning. morning. Can you hear me? Yes, yeah. yes, we can now. Yes, thank you. Thanks for joining us. So, um, the situation uh, today in uh, in Ukraine. Um, do you think it's since since the uh, since the Russian army uh, invaded? Do you think it's developed as they expected it to do? I mean, the Ukrainian defences are still seem to be holding out pretty robustly. I think that it's. Uh, I mean, obviously, that, that's the key question. Um, my, my, my own uh, observation of this, and again, I, I, as a citizen, is that, no, things are not, not developing as, as uh, President Putin would have expected. It's clear that they're getting uh, tied down. It's clear that there's been a, 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 a very considerable resistance on behalf of uh, Ukrainian uh, army and citizens, and that, you know, the, the, the blitzkrieg type of um, operation where they, everything would have been done in two or three days, well, clearly that's, that's not happened. Um, although, of course, course, on the ground, I mean, the Russians have made uh, considerable gains, particularly in the south, and, you know, they have overwhelming force. But I think, you know, for the moment, uh, it's not going as easily as President Putin would have imagined. Now, uh, good morning, Professor. In some ways, this is uh, this is alarming in the sense that uh, if there's no, nowhere for Russia to go um, and nowhere for Putin to go, then it, when people are backed into a corner and get desperate, that's when they do... Uh, rash things, isn't it? Uh, I, I think it's, it's a very uh, astute observation. Um, clearly, it's, a, it's an extremely dangerous moment. Um, it's an extremely dangerous moment in European and world history. And as, and as you as you say, I mean, to some extent, the fact that the uh, that the, the, the Russian leader has. Um, reacted in the way he's reacted means that um, his future reactions are necessarily unpredictable. I don't think we we really know uh, this is the point. I don't think we have the the real means of knowing what his future reactions can be. But I I mean, I would personally read the... um, I would personally read the uh, putting the nuclear forces on high alert not as a sign of strength, but rather as a sign that, well, you know, things are not going as as they should be. Yeah. No, I'm I'm sure we've all been boning up on the history of of Crimea and Ukraine, uh, but of course people like yourself study this for a living. I, I've been looking at, or reading a bit about what Henry Kissinger was saying um, in this area. He was saying, look, Russia should not push its border uh, westward because then it rubs up against uh, the, the West more directly. 
But by the same token, Ukraine should not be seeking a membership of NATO. How do you see that? Uh, okay, I think that's a very, I think Kissinger also said George or before World War, didn't he? You know, in terms of a, you know, let's have a diplomacy. Um, obviously, there were attempts at diplomacy. Just to, to go on that point, uh, I think essentially, how do I see this? Obvi- obviously, there are two. There are different, you know, perspectives in this debate. I mean, from the Russian perspective, a very long-term Russian perspective, in a way. Then clearly, a country, you know, the Russia sees itself and has seen itself for centuries, really, as having a sphere of influence. Um, it would it finds it difficult to accept that ukraine would be attra- would apply for nato but also that ukraine can be a, a sort of democratic society that would aspire one day to join the european union which of course is another 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 difficult uh, fact from the nato perspective um uh, and, until until present from the nato perspective countries must be free to choose their own alliances i think i would say that just on this so that nato members themselves although they are now just demonstrating a, a high degree of unity i mean it was only a short while ago before um you know president macron was saying that uh nato was brain dead for example only a couple of years ago mm. and so i think in a way there's been a one of the byproducts of this has been to strengthen certainly to strengthen western unity albeit a, a little bit late but you know i mean to some extent the unity that the western european well the western countries are showing at the moment is a uh, is of a high indeed quite unprecedented level in recent years right. but a country like austria is democratic and free and neutral and is therefore accepted and has extensive economic contacts with the other members of the EU. Similarly with Finland. But, so th- there are options on the table that keep Ukraine safe, um, but if they don't include NATO membership. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, of course, I hear what you... I mean, in a sense, there's also... Uh, there are other countries, obviously, as well. Uh, Switzerland, uh, Ireland. There are, lots of new, there are neutral countries in, the, uh, in, in that space. And I think, in a sense... <coughs> You know, the, the problem here is that this has been this has become the object of a of an attack on a on a member on a on a state on one state by another. But the, right. the the landing ground, in a way, or the eventual landing ground, if you know, if we take a realist a realist view of international relations to some extent, the 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 eventual landing ground will be presumably some form of acceptance that NATO will not in practice include uh, Ukraine, but that, that the Ukraine for its own part will have some you know, guarantees that it can survive uh, and exist right. as, a, as a state in a neutral space. Because one of the things that came up on my, r- r- my radar was a, a, a piece by Professor Mearsheimer, and I'm sure you've, you must be familiar with Indeed. his work as well. Um, he, he said this is not new. This has been going on for more than a decade it's it's just it's not got a result uh, absolutely not new no and i think in a way the uh, i think you know if we go back obviously to 2008 in particular in georgia and then crimea i mean in a way i think that the the europeans have been divided they've been divided because their own economic interests are clearly uh, rather a little bit different in relation to to russia but it's 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 sure that uh, I mean, economically, say, Italy and Germany, to say those two countries have been uh, very, very reluctant, really, to, to rock the boat too much in relation to, to Putin's Russia. Uh, and I think, in a sense, the, the, the feeling that, you know, that, that there's going to be a big, big economic cost to this is difficult for countries to accept. But, uh, you know, I think now they are, they are sort of accepting this. 
as you're right, there is a, there is a big cost here. You know, it's been going on for a long while. I think the Europeans now realise they, you know, that they didn't react in the, to the Crimea conflict in the way that they they might have reacted at the moment there. So I think there's been a, a bit of an acceleration of history actually in the last few days. Mm. Um, also, let's not forget talking about nuclear weapons. That when the when the Soviet Union uh, broke up in the uh, early nineties, uh, Ukraine I think had the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world. But they agreed to give up their uh, nuclear weapons um, in return for uh, security guarantees uh, from the West. Is that not correct? Uh, yes, yes. I mean, uh, I, I think it it is. I mean, it is correct. Uh, and I think, in a way, the, the, the whole problem here is the extent to which the West was able, really, or has been able to, to provide those security guarantees for Ukraine. And clearly, it's not really uh, been able to do that. Um, I think the, the point is, I mean, because it, it goes back to the creation of institutions like, the, you know, the NATO-Russia Council yes. and so on. The feeling, you know, it's easy to re... To re not so much to rewrite the history, but to rethink history, you know, to think of the ways that people were thinking back in those days. Clearly, I mean, there's been a, there has been an acceleration of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the way that history has evolved, is evolving today is, is in a sense the un, you know, was unthought by, uh, by many, by most, I think, uh, European uh, leaders. Maybe it's because I'm so old that I remember when Crimea was part of Russia, and then was given by Russia to Ukraine. Uh, as a gift of friendship as well, uh, yeah. back in the 1950s. I'm sure there's been some second thoughts about that now. 1954, yeah, exactly. That was uh, Khrushchev, wasn't it, who, yes. who, gave, uh, who basically uh, gave Crimea. I mean, of course, I mean, uh, but then, then we go deeper and deeper back in history and we think of Crimea, we think of the... Mm history of the Tatars, the expulsions under Stalin and all right. of this. I mean, there are, the, you know, we, we can go back a long way with history, but, but clearly, I mean, I think what I would read, you know, you're right, factually speaking. Uh, in 1954, uh, uh, Russia gave Crimea to Ukraine. Of course, it's also the case that there has been a, you know, a very sort of divided Ukrainian sense of nationality, if you like, for obvious reasons. Um, but I think this, the crises of the last 10 years or so are possibly having the effect of making... Um, you know, there's a Ukrainian national consciousness, if you like, now that probably didn't exist 15 or 20 years ago. OK, uh, we're also joined now by Alexei Muraviev, who's an Associate Professor of National Security and Strategic Studies at Curtin University. That's in Western Australia. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good, good, good morning. Thanks very much uh, for joining us. Uh, we were speaking a, a little earlier about uh, uh, President Putin putting the uh, Russia's uh, nuclear forces on high alert. Um, so the question is, uh, how concerned should we be about that? Look, it's not something that the Russians do uh, often. I mean, this is, in fact, I cannot recall when was the last time something like uh, something like that occurred. Even. Uh, in times of Russia's geopolitical standoff with the West when NATO uh, attacked Serbia back in 1999 or when Russia clashed with Georgia back in August 2008. Mm -hmm. Russian strategic nuclear deterrent also went on alert, but not certainly in the same state where it's now almost like ready to engage 
um, in a, in a, in a worst scenario situation. So I think this is this is something really serious. And again, we need to remember that Russia is a nuclear superpower with a superior nuclear arsenal compared uh, to the one of the United States and the world's largest arsenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although the the U.S. arsenal is, uh, is 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 big enough to respond if it ever came to that, isn't it? Um, Look, I mean, if if there is going to be a hypothetical nuclear conflict, and I hope it's going to be hypothetical, it wouldn't obviously be ma- uh, it wouldn't really matter on how many more uh, hundreds of nuclear warheads you you have in your arsenal compared to right. your adversary. Obviously, the United States will have substantial uh, nuclear arsenal that would devastate Russia, but at the end of the day, it wouldn't really matter because if Russia and, and, and the United States will start attacking each other with nuclear munitions, everyone will die. This... We'll, we'll face nuclear holocaust. Uh, good morning. These reports that uh, there's going to be talks between Ukraine and Russia on the border with Belarus, what do you see as the prospects of anything positive emerging from those? Look, I mean, any, any, any form of consultation, particularly when there is a bloody war on the way, is a welcome move, but also we have to be realistic. Uh, the Russians will come into these talks from the position of strength. Uh, the fact that they were already trying to list the number of demands uh, to, to, to the Ukrainians was the, the cause for these talks not occurring earlier. Uh, but obviously the Ukrainians won't be able to agree with probably to the majority, if not all, of the conditions that the Russians would uh, want to put on the table and discuss with them. So uh, in the current circumstances, uh, it would be very difficult for me to see any any quick fix political resolution. I mean, even if the Ukrainian delegation uh, uh, would be talking to the Russians or already talking to the Russians right now, uh, may agree to something... Where is the guarantee that if they will not return back to, to Ukraine, uh, this is something that would actually be, be followed if uh, other, other members of the Ukrainian government or, in fact, the Ukrainian public would consider agreements satisfactory or, or, uh, or not? If Putin is basically trapped now, isn't it, by his, by his own rhetoric. If, if, if he can't get Ukraine to pledge never to join NATO... He, he ha- he's got nothing. Well, no, I, I won't I won't put it like that. Um, uh, Putin will get Ukraine. Militarily, Russia is, is, is capable of of devastating Ukraine, and we're not only talking about day four of the onslaught. Uh, but uh, what will come out after this is this is a big thing. Uh, Putin's long-term strategy, or strategy for a long time, was. Uh, Escalate to de-escalate. So we we cannot. We, we also need to kind of assume that, uh, or at least entertain the idea that this is part of his scenario of trying to find, uh, to trying to get the West to talk to him, and and find political uh, resolution by effectively upping the ante and now adding um, uh, adding the nuclear factor into into it. Also bearing in mind that uh, that the Russians obviously are concerned about what the West will do next. For example, over the weekend, I've seen the reports that one of Russian flagships was detained in the French, in the English Channel. So the Russians are, are trying to reinstate the point that Putin made on the day of the invasion of Ukraine. Stay away from us. 
don't make any dangerous moves, otherwise you will be paying the consequences. And I think he's trying to basically make it very clear to Brussels, to Washington, to other European, uh, European and North American capitals, he is damn serious about what he said uh, four days ago. Right. What do you roll, What part do you think will be played in this by the uh, protests within Russia itself and also in Belarus at the, at the invasion? Look, I mean, we need, we need to remember that both Belarus and Russia are autocratic states. Uh, so far, as far as I understand, these protests are not large scale. These protests do not really uh, involve uh, the majority of the Russian electorate, which is traditional, uh, traditionally conservative and supportive of Putin. So far, they've been uh, representative of uh, members of the so-called non-systematic opposition in Russia, similar, similar people who protested uh, um, against the, the Kremlin when Alexei Navalny returned back uh, from um, from Germany uh, in January last year, but if the if the death toll in Ukraine and devastation of the war will continue to rise, then I would expect more people taken to the streets, including the hardliners and and those who would otherwise support Putin in his quest for Ukraine. So at this point in time, I don't really see this having any impact on 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 the Kremlin's decision making or the Kremlin's conduct. But again, it all depends on how the war will unfold uh, for both Ukraine and certainly for Russia. Sure. Uh, Professor Cole, we've seen yeah. uh, extensive sanctions uh, placed uh, on Russia, imposed on Russia, uh, uh, Russian banks cut off from, from the international banking system, uh, uh, Russian airlines can't fly over European airspace. I mean, how, how effective do you think those sanctions are going to be? with sanctions, it's always difficult to know who they will actually impact upon at, at the end of the day. But I, I would say that even a few days ago, it was looking unlikely that those type of sanctions would be adopted. You know, I mean, it was looking unlikely that Russian banks would be excluded from the SWIFT agreement. It was looking unlikely that the uh, central banks were saying that they would freeze um, uh, Russian uh, uh, monies in their own central banks. Mm. It's certainly looking unlikely that airspace would be closed. So I think in a sense, that, you know, as, as I come back to a theme I, I made earlier, I mean, I think in a way this has had a... Um, this, you know, this has had a, in the short, you know, a sort of transformative effect, in a way, on the consciousness of the European countries. I mean, we only have to look at Germany, what happened yesterday. You know, I mean, German, German defence policy is being stood on its head as we speak. You know, and so I think, in a way, there is a determination on behalf of Europeans. Will they be effective or not? Um, it's, you know, sanctions are usually uh, usually um, detrimental to the, the citizens of the states rather than the leaders of those states. So we, well, you know, we would have to see. But I would just say that, you know, I think these sanctions, they are tougher than we might have expected just a few days ago. What about the reciprocity, Professor? I'm thinking uh, Western Airlines not being allowed to uh, fly across Russia, which is the, the main route for, for Asia. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think in a way, obviously, there are no sanctions without without pain on both sides. Um, I mean, uh, clearly, there are, will be difficulties. There will be difficulties for, for Western Airlines flying to Asia. I mean, it's possible to go by other routes. Um, there will be difficulties. There will be costs. I mean, there, there will be costs in... Um, on, on all of these uh, dimensions, but I think you know, if any any sanctions without cost would be kind of a, you know a bit counterproductive. Mm. Uh, Professor Muraviev, the sanctions. 
Hello, Professor Morales. Look again. I would I would agree with my uh, I would agree with my colleague. It's uh, it's 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 a bit too early to say what would be the real impact on sanctions. I mean, we yet to see the extent of Russia's counter sanctions. I mean, we talked about the imposition of light bans over over Russia as part of the counter move. Um, the Russians promised more counter sanctions. To roll out, obviously, they don't have the same impact. Uh, they won't have the same impact on power as uh, the sanctions imposed by the West. But also, we need to be realistic and understand that the sanctions imposed by the West are sanctions imposed by by, by some 30 countries. And when Russia continues to 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 indulge in pretty cordial relations with major powers like China, I haven't seen India coming out and condemning Russia. And um, another, another 150 or so countries continue to uh, uh, maintain uh, more or less okay relations with Russia. There is always space for Moscow to maneuver around and see how they can go about living in, in, in this new world. So uh, if, if we somehow expect that uh, the severity of those sanctions will have immediate impact, and obviously we, we're talking right now about trying to alter events on the ground in Ukraine, I, I think we should not be holding our breath. In the medium to longer term, yes, they may start having impact. But again, we also need to remember that Russians are, the Russians are used to live under sanctions. They were under sanctions since 2011. Not obviously it's severe now, but they learn how to operate under them. They, they learn how to work around those sanctions. And we also need to remember that the Soviet Union existed under sanctions for about 70 years. It came under sanctions regime since the year it was created, and yet the Soviets developed a self-sufficient economy, they created their own sphere of influence, and, and they were, you know, in one of the two global superpowers at, at that time. So sanctions may also have longer-term backfiring effect when Russia will become more self-sufficient. And, and to your other point, um, Russia is not without friends. Uh, where the resolution condemning the invasion, when it went to the United Nations, was of course vetoed by Russia as expected. But there were three significant uh, abstentions, China, India and the UAE, that I noted. Indeed. I mean, if I, if I might just intervene on that. I mean, yes, there, there, there were three abstentions. Um, but they, you know, they, they were abstentions, weren't they? So in, in a sense, China, India and UAE abstained, of course, each with a, a, a very, very deep uh, economic interest with, with Russia. Um, but, you know, they, each, each of those countries felt abstention was the right, um, the right move to make, not, you know, not supporting explicitly Russia on that. China also has uh, extensive uh, economic interests in Ukraine as well, doesn't it? I, f I think it's uh, China's Ukraine's biggest trading partner. Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think in a sense, I mean, I mean if just, just say a word on China, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm not, you know, I'm not the best person to speak about China in a way. But I think in a way, we clearly see that, you know, I mean, uh, you know, Ukraine's a key economic partner. China's a key economic partner of Ukraine. Ukraine's participant in the Belt and Road. I mean, the whole, many of the former countries of the former Soviet Union are clearly uh, have deep relations with China. Um, I mean, and that can, I think, work in two ways. You know, uh, I think in a sense, China will be observing very closely uh, the evolution of, uh, of relations. And I mean, it's 
China's interest really, I think, to have um, you know to pr to present itself as a as a as a, as a peace a peace loving power uh, that will defend its interests, but in a, in, a, in a peaceful world order. So I think you know there's going to be um, some difficult decisions, I think, and arbitrations to make. Although, of course, the uh, the strength of the uh, relationship uh, between China and uh, Russia that was you know that was became obvious at the, uh, the Olympics. You know, that, that, that mm. obviously provides a background for, uh, for, the, for the current debates. And there's also money, isn't it, as was referred to earlier. If I keep my reserves in sterling, if I'm talking from Russia's perspective, and then yeah. suddenly the Bank of England says, well, you can't use them, you can't, you can't spend that money, we're freezing it. That, that would make the renminbi a more attractive reserve currency, wouldn't it? Well, yes, obviously. I mean, in a sense, the... Uh, I think my, my colleague made some good points, really, about uh, anticipating, about self-sufficiency under sanctions. And in a way, of course, one of the pushes here will be, uh, in the long run, if you exclude people from the, from the dollar-based, dollar-dominated uh, SWIFT system, in a way, well, you know, they'll look for alternatives. Of course, I mean... Um, uh, second, reserve currencies, uh, you know, clearly reserve currencies are, there are a few contenders to be the reserve currencies to the dollar, to be honest. Um, and in a way, uh, fully convertible currencies, there are not that many that could contend to be uh, reserves. But of course, in a sense, you know, the, uh, the, the Russia-China relationship will clearly, clearly uh, work in the strength of, you know, in the sense of strengthening the one um, in these, um, you know, in these, in these uh, transactions. I think they've already agreed to measure their own trade, bilateral trade, in ren renminbi. Indeed, 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 absolutely. Okay. OK, well, thank you very much uh, for speaking to us uh, this morning on the programme. That was Professor Alistair Cole, Head of the Department of Government and International Studies at uh, the Baptist University. And thanks very much to Alexei Moraviev, uh, Associate Professor of National Security and Strategic Studies at Curtin University. And just before uh, we bring uh, this morning's uh, back chat to a close, just going to return to... Um, COVID uh, for a couple of minutes because uh, a few more emails from listeners. Um, this one from uh, uh, this Leslie Ann says, Dear Backchat, I'm currently in the UK and would love to be able to come back to Hong Kong. However, with this ridiculous travel ban coupled with a two-week hotel quarantine, I still cannot face it. Why is there still quarantine when Hong Kong is riddled with thousands of COVID cases and continually getting worse? If you test uh, negative on arrival, why can't you simply go home? It's utterly ridiculous to quarantine travellers arriving in Hong Kong, and I can only deduce it is done as some form of cruel punishment. When will our government ever listen, do anything sensible or be kind to its citizens? That's from Lesnia. And, and on a similar uh, subject, uh, Doug writes... Uh, Dear Backchat, I've been marooned in the UK since my original return flight for 13th of January was cancelled due to the Hong Kong government's entry ban. Since then, I've made four further bookings to return, but all to no avail, as the Hong Kong government continues to drip-feed further entry bans, the latest being to the 20th of April. I realise that they cannot uh, give a definite date for the entry ban from UK to be lifted, but could you ask your experts if it is likely to be worthwhile for me to book a return flight any time in the near future, say May the 22nd, or is the consensus that the government will continue to drip-feed entry bans for many months to come? OK, uh, thank you, Doug. Uh, there's a bit more, but I'm going to have to... Uh, 
end it there. And then perhaps tomorrow um, on the programme we can uh, uh, see if we have uh, any guests who can perhaps uh, answer that question, how long the flight bans are likely to continue uh, for. Also, um, maybe we could get some American political experts on to talk about Trump's support of Putin mm, and how mm. that's going to read over into sure, sure. the Republican Party and yes. the midterms and everything else. That's right. Well, certainly we'll be looking more at, uh, at uh, Russia and Ukraine and, uh, and world events. Um, thank you very much to all of our listeners and uh, all of our correspondents, and thanks very much to you, Mike. It's very, very interesting. I, I don't know how people can stay away from the radio with this programme. <laughs> OK, we do our best. And before we go to the news summary and morning brew, a quick look at the weather. Mainly cloudy, sunny periods during the day. A top temperature around 22 degrees, uh, moderate to easterly winds. The outlook, sunny intervals in the next few days and mild during the day. One or two mist patches in the morning and at night. It's currently 19 degrees, humidity 67%. Elderly are at high risk of life-threatening conditions from COVID-19. The virus can damage one's heart, lungs, and brain. It may cause multiple organ failure that requires intubation in an ICU. After effects can hamper a recovery. Vaccines reduce risks of serious illness, hospitalization, and death. Experts advise that any elderly person who has had a flu shot can safely receive COVID-19 vaccines. Get vaccinated early. The new summary with Andrew Shorovsky. The UN Security Council has voted to hold a rare special session of the General Assembly to discuss Russia's military intervention in Ukraine. Today's meeting is part of Western efforts to isolate Moscow. Russia was the only country to vote against the resolution, but couldn't block it because it was procedural. Air France and Finnair have suspended flights to and from China, Korea, and Japan while they make plans to avoid Russian airspace amid expectation Russia will ban flights from the EU carriers. The EU announced a ban on Russian airlines as a part of a package of measures over Russia's military action in Ukraine. And the United States has condemned Russia for putting its nuclear forces on high alert. U.S. officials said the announcement by President Putin was unnecessary, adding it was an escalation that risked dangerous miscalculations. Those are the news headlines. I'll have more on these and other stories at the top of the hour. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. morning. Hi. Good morning. And good morning to you, too. How are you doing? Excellent. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Fine, thank you. Thanks for inviting me to your show. How are you? Good morning. How are you? Good to see you. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning. Here we are once again. It's Monday and this is the Morning Brew. Well, as always, Robbie McRobbie is going to start your week at 10.10 with today's rugby news and assorted bits and pieces. Then our regular date with New York correspondent Tracy Kwan. We're going to welcome back two old friends thereafter, starting at 11.40 with the one and only founder and owner of Nevis Animal Speak. Yep, Janice. Janice Jensen's back. For all sorts of reasons, we haven't been able to do this for a few months, but today we're going to fix that. So we're going to be finding out what's been going on live from her Caribbean island paradise of Nevis. Then at 12.10, we're going to welcome back extreme official traveller, Tor Pedersen. Check out his stuff, Once Upon a Saga. You're going to remember he's officially one of the world's most travelled people. 
But he's got a few more destinations to hit, and that's proving a problem. Quite a while he was semi-stranded in Hong Kong, and since we last spoke, he's been able to do more of what he likes best. And he's had some great adventures at sea. He's going to fill us in later on.